Thank you, everyone. Well, praise God. You may be seated. And you can turn to Romans chapter 11, where I will begin. I have an opening text there, and I want to say, from my perspective also, thank you to the Johnsons and your elder and leadership team for inviting us and for opening your heart to us, and really, of course, more than that, to, the, to Israel, to the issue of Israel, what, what that represents, and Israel itself. So thank you. Thank you all for coming out. What a beautiful crowd tonight. Friday night, it's date night, yet you came anyway. And we do not take that for granted, so thank you. Yeah, we really appreciate that. Um, by the way, yeah, my name is Bob. You probably don't know me. Uh, I don't see how you could know me. But um, my name is Bob, and that's pretty much all you need to know. Uh, I'm Scott's friend. I'm half Jewish. Uh, my father is a non-religious, unbelieving Jewish man, uh, not believing yet. Uh, my mother is a believing Gentile from um, uh, an Italian heritage, so from Jerusalem to Rome. Yes, all right. Brother Hank is cheering me on back there. Uh, yeah, that's the book of Acts, Jerusalem to Rome, one new man. Uh, so the church is really my burden, the, the New Testament identity of the church. Um, and that's one of the reasons why I have such a burden for Israel, because Israel is the elder brother nation that we want to return to the table. For the most part, our elder brother, Israel, is estranged from the faith and from uh, its own Messiah and from the table fellowship of the nations. But we have a promise that they're coming back. Uh, for whatever it's worth, I used to live in Lakeland, Florida. Uh, I lived here for four years. I met my wife here. I got engaged close to here in Tampa. Uh, I, I asked her to marry me right in the car in the parking lot. I couldn't wait. Couldn't wait to drive her somewhere more romantic than that. And um, yes, so we got married in Kansas because that's what you're... We just thought we'd get married in Kansas. Um, <laughs> And then traveled back to Lakeland to live, and we lived here right down the street on uh, Lemon Street for a year, and then Longfellow, we were at Southeastern. So there you have it. So um, now we all know each other. What's your name, by the way? Um, so Romans 11, verses 17 and 18. I'll just read first, and we'll talk about it a bit. If some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, okay, so that's referring to Gentiles, the branches that were broken off were unbelieving Jews. We have the verses up there, so that's cool. Uh, the branches that were broken off were unbelieving Jews. It's part of the, the tragic history of Israel. With God's favor and God's choice, there still was a, a history mostly of unbelief, but there was always a remnant. So one day the entire nation will come in. But because Israel mostly has rejected God's prophets, the law before that, the prophets, and then the Messiah, there can be an attitude among Gentiles that now we've arrived and we've, we've replaced them. And we're blind to the fact that they're even lost, they're still important to God, they're important to the world. They're important to God's plan. 
and they're important to the church, which is why we're urgent in our prayers for their salvation. So that they may not embrace their purpose and blessing in the covenant, we don't cop an attitude toward them. We look to them with respect and honor and urge the Lord in prayer to bring them back in. Okay, that's the posture of the church. And it's important that we do that, and it's, it's important why, and I'll talk a little bit about that tonight. So they're the natural olive tree. We're a wild olive tree. See, the Messianic Jews come up naturally from their root. We don't come up naturally from the root. We're grafted in from the outside. But it's one tree. So you being a wild olive, you were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So don't be arrogant toward the branches. Yeah, they're broken off, but don't take an attitude because they're broken off a tree that we've been grafted into. We're grafted into Messianic Israel because their role was to call the nations in. It was their role. It wasn't our role, it was their role. So we've come in despite most of them being broken off. But Paul's saying, but, but keep your attitude pure because they're still the ones that were the vehicle to bring salvation into the world. They're the ones that brought the Messiah. They're the ones that carried the burden till Messiah. Then they brought the Messiah. And the Messiah is still a Jewish king. It's a Davidic kingdom that you and I belong to. It is not a generic kingdom. God's not generic. You're not generic. I'm not generic. Nothing's generic. Everything's specific. We've got color. We've got background. We need context to be ourselves. Even God has context. There's not one isolated figure. There is Father and there is Son and there is Holy Spirit. Jesus, who is almighty God in the flesh, he's the King of kings and Lord of lords, he, he, he identified himself in light of his relationship to the Father. He never knew life ever from eternity outside of relationship from the Father's bosom. Ever. It doesn't take away from his divinity to say that we understand Jesus in light of the Father. And frankly, we understand the Father in light of Jesus. We understand them both in light of the Holy Spirit and vice versa. It's why our religion is not pagan. It is love. Because you can't have a God who loves unless he was already loving before there was anything else. Does that make sense? Whew, that was a mouthful. I'm not sure if I understand that. <laughs> God can't be love unless he was always loving. And you can't be loving unless there's someone to love. So there was always someone to love in God. Because there's three. There's not one. Three persons, one God. But there's not one person there's three if god needed to create things to love he would be dependent on his creation which would mean he's not god the proclamation that god does not have a son is a pagan proclamation god must have a son to be god because god is love and it's not just the two of them that there are three means that there his impulse is to share we need context. If God wanted to reach the nations, he needed one nation. And the nation he chose bore the burden of the day. And it wasn't easy. 
We don't know if the Italians would have done better or one of the African nations would have done better. We don't know that. It was, it was a burden to bear. So we understand that. And because of God's commitment through covenant, we must have them back in order for us to be complete. So it's good and wholesome spiritually to look to our Jewish roots, which is what this passage is about and what this message is about. The gospel of Jesus Christ calls us, a mostly Gentile church, to look to our Jewish root and to understand ourselves in light of that root and, in fact, to tap into it on purpose in order to receive the rich life from its sap. Well, that's in our text here that I haven't read yet. So we're grafted in. I've read that, right? We're grafted in among them. We became a partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree. So don't be arrogant toward the branches. But if you are arrogant, remember, it's not you who supports the root. Now this is extraordinary. Because the root is our spiritual heritage in the Hebrew people. And I believe it also refers to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's our root. Long ago, and sometimes in our minds, we think the church church has replaced Israel. But the fact of the matter is, this happened millennia ago. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were millennia ago. And what God was doing in them began millennia ago, yet we're still connected to them. We've been brought into their faith. They have not been brought into ours. We should be thankful that they were the vehicle on behalf of the world. And not only should we be be grateful, but we should look to the sap of that root because they were the ones chosen to bless us. So remember, and this is important, there's a command to keep this in the forefront of our minds and hearts. Remember. Do you understand what I'm saying? Remember is not just a little passing comment. This is an apostolic urgency. Keep this in your mind. Okay, Israel is not a fetish. We're not going to start wearing all the things and necessarily run around with the Torah and kiss it and all that. I don't mind those ceremonies, but that's a more Jewish thing. This is not a call to become Jewish. This is a call to stay connected to our root. And I'm going to give you some layered reasons why. The whole point, if I can ever launch into that. The gospel calls us to stay connected consciously and intentionally to our Jewish root. Does not mean becoming Jewish. Why should we become Jewish? God has called us to be us. Okay, thank you. So if we're not Jewish, we're supposed to be who we are, so we shouldn't become Jewish. And if we are Jewish, we're already Jewish, so we don't have to become Jewish. So nobody has to become Jewish. That's not the point. The point is, thank God I've been grafted in. I'm going to be conscious and intentional about staying tapped in to their spiritual heritage. It's exactly what Scott read. We are indebted to them regarding spiritual things. And then he says, therefore, we should invest material things. But you just let the first part resonate for a minute. We are indebted to them for spiritual things. 
It's like if you have, you have parents who, were, who, who did a poor job or they maybe were even terribly abusive or they just absolutely failed. And it's very, very to look back at them lovingly and with fondness. And you know what? If it was an extreme situation, we may not naturally be able to do that. But if, if there are parents, even in their failures, especially if we've come to know the Lord and he's become our father and now we're no longer orphans but we're children and we belong and we're targets of his love and we experience the life of his love, I would still say even to parents who did a, a terrible job, thank God for my parents. They're the ones that brought me into the world. God used them for that. And now I pray that they'd get saved and experience the fullness of God. That's our attitude. If we honor our parents, we should honor Israel. It's the way God thinks. So remember, there's an urgency, there's an imperative. It's not you who supports the root. But even to this day, the root supports you. Justification by faith is the great message. You don't have to become a Jew. You don't have to perform enough works of the law. You don't have to become circumcised. You don't have to commit to a kosher diet. You don't have to do all these, these Jewish legal things. You just have to believe. Amen. We believe the truth just, just like the Scripture teaches. We're convinced of it in our spirits. We pledge allegiance to the Lord, which is part of what faith is. And just like that, it doesn't matter your background. You're born again, same as inheritance as anyone else who's born again. Praise God. That was Paul's gospel message, justification by faith. And who's his example? You almost can't go back farther. Abraham, a Hebrew, he's the example of our new covenant faith. When Paul gets into this, when he finishes Romans 3, we're justified by faith, speaking against the backdrop of the sacrificial system. Christ's blood is the blood that blots out all sins for those who believe. Now let me give you an example. Abraham believed God. Abraham, in a new covenant faith, who's our father? Abraham. He has many sons. Many sons has Father Abraham. This is just flowing. This is just my creative thing. I, and I, I am one of them, and so are you. Now I've lost it. That's what I get for being clever and cute. Our root is magnified even in a new covenant faith. As all these Romans and Greeks and Syrians and everything else were believing in the Mediterranean world, Paul's like, remember Abraham. He's the example of faith. The Hebrew religion was not primarily a legalistic religion. The law came over four centuries after the promise to Abraham. That's our root. If he believed, guess what? That became gospel later. We did not make up justification by faith. The reformers in the Middle Ages who championed it in our season, there were reformers and there were radical reformers who were more spirit-filled and get baptized and all that when you repent. Anyway, they did not make up justification by faith. God did with Abraham. That's the root. So Paul is admonishing us to intentionally perceive the root and stay connected to it. 
Now, this is almost going to seem like, you know what, um, before I change gears, I'm going to pray. I read my text. I've now given a preface, and now I'm going to give my introduction. I'm just kidding. I'm just flowing. It's like, how long are we going to be here tonight? Just a few more hours. I'm joking. By the way, what time is it? Okay. Okay. Abba, Father, we love you with all of our hearts. And to some of us, this is absolutely brand new. Others, we get it, uh, but we need to grow in it. Whatever it is, Father, spare us from anything being spoken or heard or understood tonight that's of the flesh, that's of the carnal mind. But instead, we pray for the anointing of God to rest upon this entire congregation. We're asking for a revelation of Jesus Christ and his kingdom. We pray for your mercy and your grace to be abundant tonight. And I ask you right now that you would open up the eyes of our hearts, that we would see the grandeur of this kingdom. And Lord, as we look to the Jewish roots, we pray that that would serve to grant us understanding of who Jesus is, what the kingdom is, and how, therefore, we ought to respond. We want to be conformed to the image of Jesus. That's what we want. Accomplish that a little bit more tonight in us and through us. Jesus is King and Lord, alive from the dead, and he deserves such a people. It's in his uh, name we pray. Amen. So here's where I'm going with this. Looking to our Jewish root enables us to be a more biblical people. Right? Sometimes we're more shaped by the Reformation of the Middle Ages, which contributed something magnificently important to our faith. Okay? I'm not denying the restoration of justification by faith. And, and, and what happened in Europe during that season with Luther and Calvin and everyone else, and like I said, the radical reformers, what they brought to the table, table the church needed. But they didn't make it up. We don't need to be shaped by those traditions by themselves. We need to take what God did, but really stay connected to the Jewish root. That's what I'm saying. All right? And, and then in, in modern times, we've often, our lives, our personal lives, ethically, the way we do church is so conditioned by what's popular around us. I feel like the more we're intentional about responding to our Jewish root, the more biblical we become. In style, I'm talking personal depth of style and the way we walk this out. That's my, that's my theme tonight. That's my burden. And in fact, what I'm going to do is I'm going to say a few more things to introduce this concept. And then I'm going to talk about one area of life that our Hebrew root exposes us to and welcomes us in. So I'm going to give you an introduction, then I'm going to talk about the first theme. And then tomorrow, I'm going to continue with this class. Tomorrow morning, I'll just continue with this theme, and I'll give you one more topic or two that belong to our Hebrew root. So I'm going to read a passage from Psalm 119. You can turn there if you want. Psalm 119 Three verses, verses 33 through 35. Are you guys doing that from back there? Forgive the distraction. So it, I don't know if you have this, but this is going to be the New King James Version, Psalm 119. You don't have to use that verse. It doesn't matter. Psalm 119. Listen to what the psalmist says here. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. 
Give me understanding and I will keep your law. Indeed, I will observe it with my whole heart. Make me walk in the path of your commandments. For I delight in it. All right, there's two key words there. In the first verse and in the last. The psalmist says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. He doesn't say, teach me your statutes. He says, teach me the way of your statutes. Because, Lord, you have these laws. You will not commit murder. You will not commit adultery. Whatever else it is, the, the Torah, land-specific issues, of even the kosher diet, whatever it is, the psalmist is meditating on these things. It's like you have, it's kind of like a list of rules. You have these statutes. You have these statements you demand of your people. But you're coming from somewhere when you say these things. It's not just a list of rules. God has a way of operating. And these rules reflect his way. So the psalmist didn't just want to obey a bunch of rules. He wanted to get past the rules, come on now, to the root. There's something behind these statutes that they're coming from. I want that. That's why all of Psalm 119 is this gigantic prayer interacting with God and the Word. And then the the next reference here, make me walk in the path of your commandments. It's not just your commandments. i got to obey this. i got to obey that. There's a path that those commandments represent. So we're not talking about embracing a list of rules. We're talking about a way of life that issues from God's character. God has his little ways, just like you and me. He's got idiosyncrasies. They're all holy and they're genius, but they're just him. And the psalmist was like, that's what I want. I want to obey your commandments. I want obedience. But I want to know where you're coming from when you say that because I love you and I love your heart. And that's what I want to know. I want to walk in the path of your commandments, not just your commandments. I want, I want to teach me the way of your statutes. Come on now. The, the root of our Hebrew faith calls us to understand God in this deeper way. This, to me, is entirely Jewish when a man prays this way. I'm, I'm saying that because I figure it's David. The, the psalm doesn't bear his name. So man, woman, committee, wh- whoever is the author of this, it's like they're getting at something that's at our root of our faith. We should be interested in the character of God and getting to know him so well, we know his ways. We know where he's coming from. It's not just a list of rules. That's superficial. I want to know where you're coming from. I want to know your style. Uh, The Bible calls this wisdom. It's the way God operates, and it's embedded throughout all of creation and embedded into his people. And he gave the Torah out of that, and the psalmist took that and said, okay, where are you coming from when you say this? I want to know this. So our Hebrew root calls us to a gospel-shaped way of life. That's a Hebrew way of life of thinking, if you would. We want to know his ways, all right? That's where we're going with this. That's why God chose Israel. Because he wanted a nation who would bear the contours of his character. Who would bear his image. Who would show the nations his ways. 
Therefore, these ways predated Israel, but he honored them with the calling to bear them in the earth. So again, this is not an endorsement of everything that any Hebrew or Israelite or Israeli or Jew has ever done. No. This is not a fetish with things Jewish. This is a pursuit of the heart of God that is embedded in the the biblical Hebrew ways. Even in Israel, Paul says, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. There were some Jews who kept the covenant from the heart and some who did not. And the Psalms often celebrated those who did. What I mean is, it happened often. They were called the righteous ones, the loyal ones. The, we get the word Hasidic Jews from the loyal ones. It's, it's almost a technical term. The righteous ones, which is why we have justification by faith. My righteous one will live by faith. That is, the, the Jew who actually kept the law, he lives by faith. And Paul got justification by faith out of that. Habakkuk 2.14. My point is, there was an Israel within Israel. Scott, that's where your passage comes from. Psalm 15. Who, what is it again? Is it, who will ascend the hill of the Lord? Is that that passage? And then it says, he who has clean hands, a pure heart, swears to his own hurt. What does that description come from? David is saying, that's what a covenant keeper looks like. It's not just born, he's not just born a Jew. He loves the Lord and he walks in his ways. It's, it's the mark of the covenant keepers. What a grand theme, covenant. How often do we speak of covenant? It's, it's part of our Hebrew root heritage. Even the Jews of Jesus' day, were, they were so Jewish in, in their thinking and orientation, but when it came down to it, they rejected their Messiah, which isn't a very Jewish thing to do. So just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you fulfill God's form of Jewishness. Does that make sense? I mean, the Jews of Jesus' day, I'm talking about the ones that especially rejected him, they were very distinct, and they wouldn't go into the praetorium and they kept all the, the laws, and they were very, very careful about that, and Phariseeism took it to every kind of traditional extreme, but when it came right down to it, what did they say to get Jesus crucified? We have no king but Caesar? Really? You're a Jewish nation, and you just confessed Caesar is your king? Your true colors have come out. Jewishness is not just something that's outward, it's inward. You're rejecting your Messiah and claiming Caesar is your king. That's a pretty Gentile thing to do. So they're not all Israel who are from Israel. The the covenant keeping is is the really divinely Jewish thing to do, and God has called us to be mindful of these kinds of themes. Do you see what I'm saying now? At our Jewish root. That's the root that supports us. Not traditional Judaism, not just having a fetish with these things. It's, It's the biblical identity of God embedded in our history. Okay, let me say one more thing about this. I'm, I'm just giving you a few of my notes. Our call to understand our Hebrew root is not a call to become Jewish, and it's not a call to copy everything Hebrew or what Hebrew people did. It is rather a call to be ourselves while honoring our Jewish root and identifying the sap of that root which carries the plant's nutrients into our branches. That's what I want, life. Holy Ghost life. Well, that comes from Jesus. We're the branches, he's the vine. 
And guess what? He's born of a, as a descendant of David in the lineage of biblical Jewish Hebrew faith. So I want to stay connected to that root. I don't want to have Gentile arrogance and push all that aside because it makes me unbiblical. In other words, there's a quality of life I'm missing if I don't tap the Jewish root. That was kind of an important thing to say. So I'll repeat it. Right? If we avoid tapping into our Jewish root, the spiritual heritage that's there, we lose part of the quality of our spiritual life, biblical life, and may I say kingdom life. We are not called to a popular American evangelical life as a way of life. There may be good overlap, but that's not our ultimately call, ultimate calling. Jesus said, seek first his kingdom, and he taught the Sermon on the Mount. That's a way of life we're called to. Did you know the church is a way of life? We go to church. In Acts, the church was a way of life. We, we, uh, nine times in the book of Acts, the church is called the way. They weren't just a gathering that got together in a building. They were a way of life. They were steadfastly committed to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayer. It's just what they did. They lived and breathed it. They didn't attend or shop around like consumers. We've made an art out of that. The better we are at that, the more apostolic we are from a popular point of view. We're completely unbiblical. And then we prance around with Jewish things hanging from us as if we're getting to our Jewish roots. You think you're going to res help restore the global family when you can't even live family here? And, and the conductors on the stage have to conduct everything or we have no idea what's going on. This is what I'm talking about. The, the, to, to, to get back in touch with our Jewish root is to get back in touch with a way of life. Teach me, O oh Lord, the way of your statutes. That's our urgency. We're Davidic. We want the heart, not the superficial. But we all have to be willing for it. We want the nutrients of divine life. The, our, our Hebrew root creates for us the categories in which we should live and move and have our being. You with me on that? Let me see where I wrote. Okay, good. Okay, here we go. We are called to understand and embrace our Hebrew origins, our Jewish root, intentionally. Remember, you didn't get it from me that you should start acting Jewish and just start understanding some traditions. I'm talking about authentic biblical faith. I'm talking about a restoration to innocence. Innocent of the world's ways impressed upon us. We've allowed the world to tell us what it means to be the church or to be a Christian. Largely. But a people who are in pursuit of God so they know his ways like a person who's got a certain style. I mean, now that's a people that are going to start just becoming a way of life themselves. You can almost have no programs when that's happening. You just have people living like a river of life. And it's just the speech and the, the families and the spirit and the life and the breaking bread. And people just get discipled into that or they hate you, but they'll never ignore you. 
It's a river of life. Here, we've camouflaged right into it. Here, I mean in our modern day, in our gentilic way of thinking, and so many Jewish congregations are just as gentilic. It's not a matter of being Jewish. It's a matter of tapping into the root, to the way, the way. Oh, my goodness. The way. Our Jewish root provides for us the context of life in the kingdom. Our kingdom is a Davidic kingdom. It's a Davidic kingdom that never, that never changes, right? He sits on the throne of David. We should understand something about that. To pursue our Jewish root intentionally is an act of humility because it means God is the one designing things. We let him be the North Star rather than we create our own little thing and invite him in. Come on in, Lord. Thank you. I think it's an act of love to honor someone else's choices, no matter how they may appear to us or strike us. It's called love to honor that person's burdens and style rather than our own first. My precious daughter, one of my precious daughters, I have four daughters, one son, who have all come from one wife. One of them asked me to spend a moment together. We had lunch together so that she could, through tears, tell me about a very, very brief, very brief but vivid dream she had. And when she asked the Lord what it meant, he told her, and it became a very heavy burden. She said, I was just going about my daily business, and I was suddenly whisked away to my own wedding. I had no idea who I was marrying. And attendants were attending me. There was one main attendant, and there were a few attendants with that person. And they dressed me in a wedding dress I did not like and did my hair in a way I would not choose to do it. And she looked in the mirror and she said, I wouldn't choose that dress and I wouldn't choose this, this hairstyle and I don't even know who I'm going to marry. And then she was whisked out through the town on the way and it was over. She said, Lord, what does it mean? She says, so much of, the Lord said to her, so much of my church, they don't know who they're marrying. And they don't like the clothes that he likes. And they don't like the style of hair that he likes. And she's like, Dad, I don't think that applies to our church. I'm like, well, just <laughs> what is what is. I mean, I'm sure there's dimensions of that, but it was a larger burden than that. It's like our king, the one to whom we are betrothed, has his ways. He likes a spot-free, wrinkle-free dress. He likes hair of glory and submission. And he's a certain kind of king. We should know who he is so that when he cries out with the trumpet, we recognize his voice, right? I'm suggesting to you that tapping into our Jewish root will help us understand our Jewish king. And it's not a matter of pharisaical or rabbinic tradition. It's a matter of biblical faith, the ways of Yahweh. That almost rhymes, the ways of Yahweh. I used to show these videos to our youth group many years ago, and in one of the little videos, the skit that was being presented, an angel appeared to these two cool dudes. I don't know what they are. They're, I, I don't know what they're called. They're like valley guys or something. And the angel told them something, and they're like, no way, no way. And the angel finally said, Yahweh. <laughs> All right. Just a little break for you, a little blessing extra. 
Israel was chosen. They didn't always succeed in doing it, but they were chosen to show the world God's ways. Therefore, a quick list here, and we'll move on. The intentional pursuit of our Jewish root shapes our spiritual psyche to think biblically. And it will take some undoing and doing. I'll say that again. The intentional pursuit of our Jewish root shapes our spiritual psyche to think biblically. This pursuit challenges our worldly and religious assumptions and traditions. You're hearing me, right? We're going for a way of life that's embedded in the Bible. it's, It's all there. But our biblical root helps us to see it in the raw rather than through the filters of our traditions. If we're serious about our Jewish root, it's going to challenge our traditions and our assumptions that are religious. The pursuit of our Hebrew root will give us a pathway to a kingdom lifestyle and culture so that we're not a church by virtue of attending or a church by a virtue of the way we share life together and with the king. This pursuit gives us, and here we go, this pursuit gives us the categories of biblical life. As I said before, in which we live and move and have our being. So that's kind of like my bottom line, and then we're going to ride off that for a few more minutes. I'll say that one again. This intentional pursuit of our Jewish root. And there's another rhyme. This intentional pursuit gives us the categories of biblical life. Categories. Pathways of biblical life that we're supposed to walk. These pathways include ways of the kingdom. Our biblical root reveals the kingdom. The kingdom of God is God's dominion and what life looks like in that dominion. Life is the kingdom. The kingdom is a way of life. All right, you got that idea. I think I've repeated that a few times. When I talk about kingdom, I'm talking about God's sovereignty. He's the Lord and he's creator but it's not something distant. It's something that impresses itself on the hot wax of our lives. Our Hebrew root shows us what God's sovereignty is, what his eternal purpose is. You see, it gets us thinking in terms of a feast rather than nibbling on the little worldly things that keep our stomachs full but few nutrients. Our Hebrew root gives us the feast of things eternal and things heavenly so that we can be full of their nutrients on the earth as it is in heaven. All are welcome at Aslan's table. So we're talking kingdom, God's sovereignty, worship, creator. We're talking eternal purpose. We're talking covenant. We're talking servitude. We're talking covenant people, i.e. church. All right, you ready? Now I'm going to begin my sermon. No, I'm just kidding. I'm like way past a third of the way there. No, I'm past that too. But I've got another scripture for you that we're going to read to talk about one of these categories for a few minutes. All right, that's what we're going to do. We're going to talk about our first category for a few minutes. And that category is God's sovereignty, which is another way of saying his kingdom, which is another way of saying we worship. That's the only proper response to sovereignty is worship. Anyway, I'd like for you to turn to Psalm 95.
This psalm begins exactly the way Corey began things tonight. Okay, verse 1. And here we go, Psalm 95. Oh, come, let's sing for joy to the Lord. How many of you know that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, except for a few parts in Aramaic? Jewish root, just, just saying. But the New Testament written in Greek is still the ways of the Hebrew faith written in Greek, which is not saying it changed to something Gentile. It's saying that the Hebrew ways are being incarnated in a Gentile world. Anyway, we get psalms from the Hebrew Bible. Come on, let's sing for joy to the Lord. Let's shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let's come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let's shout joyfully to him with psalms. Why? Because the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods in whose hand are the depths of the earth. The peaks of the mountains are also his. The sea is his because he was the one who made it and his hands formed the dry land. Now, I want to say a few things about that half of the psalm. Then we'll read the second half. This first half of Psalm 95 that exposes to us the sovereignty of God. All right? It calls us to worship as adoration of Yahweh. It's a call to adore Him. To shout His worth out of a heart full of His worth. But for certain reasons. First of all, because of his presence. Now, this is extraordinary because we're ultimately talking about his sovereignty, which is his transcendence. But the first thing this celebrates is he is with us. He's the rock. And we celebrate literally in Hebrew his face, his presence. So he's adored because he's the present God. His transcendence does not hold him aloof. Somehow his lordship and freedom from all things gives him the freedom to be right here present, the most intimate, friendly, patient, loving being in the entire universe. He is the present God. And, if, and you can't get a greater statement than that, than the incarnation itself, himself. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. So this psalm is a call to say, the sovereign God is with us. He is mighty to save. That's another reference. But we also adore Yahweh for this sovereignty. He's called the king. He's over all other gods. He's the Lord. We're not the Lord. He's the Lord. <laughs> He's king. I know this is a millennial generation, which has come after the postmodern generation. They come after the modern generation, which all says it's all about me. Modernism shifted the center of the universe from God to humanity. Postmodernism took it into not just humanity and gener generically, but me. My phone, iPhone, iPhone. What's my email address? Da -da 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 at me.com. But the Hebrew universe is a throne-centered universe. It's a Yahweh-centered universe. Our friend Howie Morgan says that when the Lord appeared to Moses in a burning bush and he said, I am, that implies you're not. That's Howie Morgan. I want to give total credit. 
So Psalm 103, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his sovereignty rules over all. And this is a fact. This is good doctrine. Amen. He's king. He's Lord. And we're called to celebrate him for that. So presence and then sovereignty. Amen. Throne center universe. Lord, you're our reference point, not we ourselves. But also this first half of the psalm calls us into the biblical category of sovereignty, which means God is the creator. This was some, Am I being too loud for you? Because I'm sorry. I can tone it down for you. <laughs> She's like, I don't think that's funny. Uh, creator. God created all things. It was a standard Hebrew doctrine. It was part of the message to the nations. Now, your gods didn't make anything, and the sea isn't a god, and the Nile is not a god, and those stars are not god. There's one god who made all those things. It was a testimony to the nations. God has designed and made out of nothing through his son, Jesus Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the breadth and details of all of creation. He designed the world from fractals to galaxies. The, the, the minutia in a, in a cell is more complicated, not more complicated, but as complicated as the, the entire universe that's hundreds of millions of light years broad. I mean, in the details and in the breadth of it, it's, it's impossible. It's breathtaking. He made it all. It's a good doctrine. Sovereignty of God. He's the creator. And this psalm calls us to worship him for these things. He designed our world. And he invited us into it, right? We didn't design the garden. He did. He, we didn't even plant the garden. He planted it and put us in it, right? That's a good pattern. So he doesn't just create everything. He creates our world and then invites us in the garden that he planted for us. I want to say something else about that. When it says that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, it means that our life was designed by God out of respect and something miraculous. But it doesn't just mean he made our body and soul. It means he designs our lives. For God to be creator doesn't just mean he made the animals, which is what you learn if you watch the Donut Man when you were little. When they, remember the one where they went to the zoo? But the little boy was having a little struggle with his two younger siblings. What did we learn today? That God made the animals. That's right. God made the animals. And who else did he make? Them. He made things. But the, the fact that God is creator means more than he made things. It means he designed our lives. And we're not called to design our own lives. We're called to let God design our lives, and then we step into his design. That's a Hebrew root. Whoopie-doo, you have the doctrine right that God created all things, but are you willing to submit to him as your creator? David in Psalm 16 says, the lines have fallen to me in pleasant places. My heritage is beautiful to me. You support my lot. I'm thankful for what you've given me. I'm not going to compete with this one or that one. You designed me for a certain place in your heart, a certain path in this life. I'm going to walk in that. You're my creator. So, so we can say, yes, the Lord's the creator of all things, but can we say, he designed my life and it's well with me? That's what it means for God to be the creator. But we'll get back to that a little bit. Let's, in a moment, let's read the second half of that psalm. It begins in verse 6, the way I've broken it up. 
So, so there you have God's majesty through presence and, and sovereignty and cr- creative authority revealed. And we're just called to say, right, consider these things and rejoice. Right? Okay, that's the first half of the psalm. Everybody with me? Yes. Now he changes gears. It's subtle at first, and then it's severe. Come, let's worship and bow down. Let's kneel before the Lord our Maker. Okay, a minute ago we were shouting. It was just the the praise part of the service, if you would. Yes, Creator God. Just enjoy it, guys, no problem. But now that we've soaked in that a little bit, we need to change our posture. And you, f- you feel the depth of that? It's not just a matter of singing and shouting because God's so great. It's a matter of, okay, now we have to bend our lives into his sovereignty with submission and adoration, right? And we will worship and we will bow down and we will call him. It's like change your position, okay? Because the creator of all things is also the creator of your life. And if you don't like the way he designed your life, you don't know his ways. And you're not worshiping. So scream all you want about how he's the Lord. But if you don't like the way he designed your life and you're pushing it out because you want to do your own thing and then invite him in, you're not bowing, you're not kneeling, is what the psalm is saying. Change your posture. Okay, good, you got good doctrine. But is the doctrine burning in your heart? Jesus went into the wilderness for 40 days. And the devil tempted him after fasting. And said, bow down to me and I'll give you all this. And Jesus said, you will worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This wilderness isn't easy, but it's where he sent me. It's the design for my life. And I'm not bowing to you to get that destiny a different way. Is God your creator? To me, tapping the biblical root is getting into this level of sovereignty and creative authority for us we're not just shouting it we're conforming our lives to it come on now we're changing our posture we've we've only begun this half why should we kneel because he's our god and we're the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand and then look what it says today if you hear his voice don't harden your hearts and suddenly there's a severe warning right in the middle of all this praise and then we're bowing down Because this whole idea of exalting God for being the creator has implications for our daily lives. And that's where suddenly God's not our creator. So the psalmist comes in with a prophetic oracle and says, be careful, don't harden your heart like they did in the wilderness. They didn't like his design. They could give the doctrine that he's creator, but they couldn't give the life pathway element of his creation. They resisted his path. And they suffered for it. They did not worship him as creator. Doctrine, yes. Practical posturing of life, no. So here comes this warning in the middle of this praise. It's almost an interruption. But it's not an interruption to the psalmist. It's flowing with the worship service. Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, where they complained about the water and all of that. Don't do what they did. This is in Psalm 95. This is years after Decades and decades, centuries after, right? Here comes the prophetic warning again. And by the way, this same psalm made it into one of the New Testament epistles to a church who was resisting God's ways. 
Today, if you would hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me and they tried me, though they had seen my work for 40 years, I loathed that generation and said they are a people who err in their heart and they do not know my way. Yes, your creator. Well, I designed this for your life. That doesn't make any sense to me. I'm not going to do that. Well, then you don't know my ways. You're not really worshiping me as creator. It's what we tend to do. God is our creator, means he designs our lives and invites us into it. It's called hospitality. Here's your life. I invite you in. Here's your garden. I don't like that, Lord. I want something else. No, this is my way. No, no, no. Shh, 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 shh. Shut up, Lord. Shut up, Lord. Shut up, Lord. Shut up. Here's what I want. Here's what I want. Here's my career. Here's my spouse. Ah, now I'm so happy. Thank you, Lord. Come on in, Lord. That I'm not creator of that, he would say. And you know what? He's so gracious. He will visit those things we build. He'll visit. He's a good, gracious God. But we don't benefit from actually knowing him. Not on that level. As creator. The one who makes a path in the seas, but his footprints are indiscernible do we worship him as creator to me that's a hebrew root i don't care what's hanging from my my belt i care if i'm the kind of worshiper that says lord your ways are higher than my ways i choose yours i I allow you to design my life because that's not easy to say all the time and i'm not up for it i i plead for mercy and grace so therefore he swears in his anger he, he they will not enter my rest In the second half of the text, worship is not just a call to adore Yahweh for these different things, but worship is a posture of life that submits to Yahweh's designs for you and for me. He says to his people, you did not know my ways. Now, there was a verse, I told you that this was quoted in Hebrews chapter 3 and and then alluded to also in chapter 4, so we might look at some of that in the last little portion of the message here. So you can turn to Hebrews 3. Oh, actually, we'll probably start in Hebrews 4 when we get to it. So you could go to Hebrews 4, but you'll be so close to 3 that it won't be too inconvenient to go back there. <laughs> they don't know my way. So why is that such an important issue in Psalm 95? Because Psalm 95 refers to Mary Bah and Massah, the place of testing and complaining. Where? In the wilderness. Why do you complain in a wilderness? Because it's a hard place to be. It's dry. And God's not feeding us the abundance that we want. We're on a partial fast. It's manna and water out of a rock. So that by itself is hard enough to go through a wilderness, right? Yes, right. Ah, yes, I knew you were going to respond. If I would just be patient. The wilderness seems like everything is backwards. The wilderness is where it looks for the minute that God's word is being contradicted. The wilderness, however, is where God gave his people the law, the priesthood, and the tabernacle. 
the dwelling place. All the good stuff happened in the wilderness. It didn't happen on the mountain peak. It didn't happen in the promised land. Come on now. We, we run from church to church, from event to event, because we need the fix. And God's like, if you'll just let me deal with you in the wilderness. But Lord, that's so hard. Yeah, but I'm the designer. I know what human life is. You don't. I know the man or the woman I'm trying to make and fashion. Submit to my designs, right? So the wilderness is hard enough, but here's what makes the wilderness harder. What's the prophetic word hanging over Israel while they're in the wilderness? The prophetic word is this. I know you know, Scott because I preached this before. The prophetic word is what? Promised land. Milk and honey flowing. National identity. You'll be gold. You'll be the head, not the tail. That's my prophecy to you. Where do I take you? Promptly into the desert. Something's messed up. It's the leader's fault. You've brought us out here to kill us. We want to go back to Egypt. Disarray, pressure, wastelands, badlands, thirst, hunger, all magnified by a prophetic word that says, a land flowing with milk and honey while I take you into the place that symmetrically contradicts it. Therefore, what do we do? We complain. We resist something's wrong. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. But it's not my fault. And God says, ah, you don't know my ways. You know how to eat a prophecy, but you don't know the way I operate. I'm not going to embed all the information in the prophecy, man. I want you to know me, and I've got my way of operating. i got my little ways. If you knew me, you'd know that's the way I operate. I'll announce a good, solid, prophetic word, and then I'll take you somewhere else. And if you knew me, you wouldn't have had a problem with that. You'd be holding on to that prophetic word. You'd be saying in the wilderness, Lord, this is really hard. I pray for grace. But I want to go on record while I'm in the, uni- while I'm in the wilderness. I believe you, Lord. I believe you. I believe your word. We want to believe God when there's fulfillment. That's not worship. That does not mean God's creator. And that's not a very Jewish thing to do. That's not our Hebrew root. Worship his sovereignty. He's creator. That's our Hebrew root. Uh, The prophetic oracle says promised land. The ways of God say wilderness. Put them together. The prophetic dimension of life says destiny. The wisdom aspect of life says the design to get you to your destiny. The prophetic oracles assume you're reading your Bible and reaching out to touch God. Now I'll read that verse. By the way, you know what I'm going to... My wife would say skip this now that you're too far into it, but... I'm just going to respectfully disagree. (laughs) She really loved that I said that. I want to read a portion of Psalm 139. Don't turn there, though. I'd love for you to stay in Hebrews 4, verse 12. Listen to David's celebration of God's creating him. You created me in my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame, okay, so his physical, his, his physique, his... His, his, 
bone structure, his cell structure, the way God made him, and his soul. None of it was hidden from you when I was in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, my unformed body. And then he says, all the days ordained for me were already written in your book. So it's interesting the way he slides right into that. It's like you made my different parts, you put my intestines in, you made my personality, you physically made me, you emotionally made me, and you also made my days. It's all one thing to him. If you made me, you made my days. You've charted out a life for me. I embrace that life, Lord, because you're the creator. You have made us, not we ourselves. Right? For him, creation was not just that you made me, but you have days ordained for me. You ever heard of that? Good works prepared when? Beforehand that we should walk in them. We, we are, those whom, he, um, those whom he knew, he also what? Predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That's his only concern. I don't care how great the real estate business is. I don't care. You know, I mean, he, he, bl- he wants to bless us, but his real concern is, is Christ being formed in you? Because that's your main destiny, and then you have certain a design to get there. That's just for you. Do you trust me as creator? Now, let's, and I'm, I'm quoting God. <laughs> now, Hebrews 4.12. Listen to the writer of Hebrews. The word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, of both joints and marrow, And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. That language is very important. I hope you're letting it just rest on your soul. It's the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces all the way to soul and spirit, which you cannot separate. But the word can separate it. The division of joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is able to dig inside of us to the core of our being and expose who and what we really are. That's what it's saying. And he goes on, no creature is hidden from his sight. Everything's open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Now, if you're reading that passage carefully, the the author is talking about the same scene in Psalm 95 when they're going through the wilderness and complaining. And he's applying it to the church. And he's saying they couldn't enter rest. If you, even believers, don't submit to God and enter his rest, then you could fall like they fell in the wilderness. And then suddenly, he says, the word of God's sharp like a sword. Just out of the blue. It's like wilderness, disobedience, rest, all that. And then suddenly, he says, the word of God is living and active. It's a sharp sword. For all those of you in that. It's like, Lord, that's great. I love that. I love Star Wars, you might say. But how does that apply to this whole wilderness analogy? Well, you go back in chapter 4. Remember, okay, I mean in verse 1 of chapter 4. In chapter 3, he quoted our psalm. Our psalm he quoted in 3, 7 through 11. If you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. He's preaching from the same text. Then he says in 3, 12, take care that none of you falls away the way they did. Encourage one another. Then in verse 1 of chapter 4, here's my closing point for you all, just so you know. So hang in there, just a few more moments. Here and there I see a little fidgeting, and I understand. I've been up here yelling for like an hour almost. (laughs) Everybody peacefully stand. Verse 1, therefore let's fear if while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. For indeed... We have had good news preached to us 
just as they also. Who's they, guys? Who's they? Israel in the wilderness. What was their good news? Promised land. We've had the same good news preached to us. Our promised land is spiritual and physical, ultimately. But spiritual, you know, it's entering his rest and all that. So there's a parallel there. But then look at what he says in the second half of verse 2. But the word they heard didn't profit them. Oh, there's the word. That word in verse 2 is the word of verse 12 that becomes a sword. The word they heard did not profit them because the word was not united by faith in those who heard. The word they heard was promised land. That's the word. When that word promised land is spoken during a really cool conference meeting, everyone rejoices. But when that word that I received in a conference, I then follow the Lord into the wilderness with, suddenly the word isn't as exciting as it was over here. When we as a church, all 200 of us, were just, right, yes, we're all jumping up and down. Everyone's rejoicing when the word is given during a worship service. But now God takes us into the land of contradict that word for a minute. And the problem is we're in the contradiction land, but the word remained the same. That's when the word becomes a sword and cuts us open and says, now how many of you are rejoicing? Because over here, when you had all 200 people rejoicing, you had all kinds of people rejoicing in spirit and a bunch of them rejoicing in the soul only. We can't tell the difference over here. So we're going to come over here with the same word when that word suddenly splits everyone. And then you go, oh, wait a minute, we're not supposed to be here. Oh, what happened to the joy over here? Well, that's when we were over there. Now we're over here. Yeah, now it's a sword. So now we can tell whose spirit and whose soul. This is where we can tell, do you believe me to design your life? Because if you knew my ways, you'd know that this happens sometimes. I take you through these paths to form you. I'm not just, I don't want to bring a bunch of spoiled brats into the promised land. I want to bring people who've been shaped by faith and their worshipers. I'm not as concerned how exciting your worship service was as I am concerned, do you respect me for the way I designed your life? And do you believe me when my promise contradicts your circumstances? That's when I know I have people of spirit, not people of soul. That is what I think of when I start to tap my Hebrew root. I think, now that's the Hebrew faith to which we've been called. Let's stand together. I know I'm, I'm winging it here, Corey. I'm sorry. I should have asked you, but I didn't think of it. Do you happen to know Yahweh? If you don't, I mean, I, I never get it, so don't worry. <laughs> Show us your glory, Yahweh. Okay, no, that's all right. Showing my age a little bit. <laughs> Whatever you feel is good once we get to that. Let's just begin to, to, to lift our voices and touch the Lord in prayer, just, just for a few.
Abba, Father, Abba, Father, Lord, have mercy. I turn to the Lord right now. I'm like, Lord, have mercy on my soul. If you're going through a wilderness, it's not too late. This is your opportunity to go on record before God, to trust him. He's going to bring you into your destiny. He is the creator. He knows how to design your life. Some of you may feel like, and it's usually the case, you feel like, oh, I complained my way out of it. Now everything's ruined. It's not. You just get right back on track. If you're in the wilderness, build a tabernacle and call on the name of the Lord. And trust him as the designer of your life. I mean, we want to be people of courage. We want to be people of faith. We want to be the kind of people that's like, yeah, I believed God in the wilderness. That's when I believed, and he'll bring me into the promised land. I'll never forget Lou Engel coming to fire when he was 50 years old. And he's up there going, I finally came into my purpose. I'm 50 years old. I finally came into my purpose. God's ways and his timing is just not ours, right? So let's rest before him. Just worship on your own. And if you have to repent, then repent. You want to come forward? Come forward. Stay where you are. It does not matter. I'm not the greatest altar call guy, but listen, let's repent and worship the Lord and submit to him. Lord, we want authentic faith. We want to know your ways. So we're asking where we have been off kilter. Forgive us. Forgive us for complaining. It comes from something deeper. Cleanse us. Forgive us for holding people who've treated us certainly with injustice and unkindness and abuse for their purposes. It was wrong and it was satanic and it was sinful, but still they can be tools in your hand to shape me. So forgive me for not forgiving them. And guys, if you hold something against someone, lay it out right now. Give it to the Lord. Just forgive. Forgive on the basis of God's eternal plan for you, not their behavior. Forgive them on the basis of God's behavior because God will take it and use it to form his son in you if you let him by the Spirit. Lord, release grace right now to forgive. Release grace to repent. Release grace right now to worship in Jesus' name.